Hi there, and welcome to Vineyard Church, Delaware County's podcast. My name is Michael Hansen. I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and I am so glad that you have joined us for this week's message. I'm going to have a little bit more to say at the end, but for now, enjoy the teaching. Hey, good evening, everyone. Brian? Uh, Good morning to those of you who are watching online. Good morning, Mom and Dad. My parents always watch. It's good to know. Uh, I'll do my best. But uh, uh, we're do- this series, Chasing After the Wind, so far in this series, you know, I'm going to jump right in here. We've been looking at, uh, uh, we think, Solomon's ponderings over all the stuff uh, that he's been observing in, in his life and in the life of others. And most of the time, he's not sure of the meaning or the purpose behind a certain issue or struggle that he observes. And there's a word that he cries out a lot, and that word is... Hevel. Okay, but everyone gets surprised. Uh, but, but it's hevel. The word is like meaningless. I think it's 38 times he says it. Meaningless, vanity, useless. And, and, and really, more often than not, up to this point, in this, uh, we ended at end of chapter 4 last week, if Solomon lo- lands on any solid ground, he uses language like this. You know, a person uh, in this life can do nothing better than just you know, have a good meal, have an appropriate drink, and, and, you know, just learn to find satisfaction in their work and in their toil in this life. But as we get into chapter 5, the section we're going to look at uh, this weekend, uh, Solomon, the, the writer of Ecclesiastes, is called the teacher. Really, in chapter 5, he becomes the preacher. Uh, the section we're going to look at is just, it's strong, it's very clear, there's a lot of uh, conviction in what he's saying. It's, it's, it's a section where I, it doesn't seem like it's murky for him. It's like he's figured this section out. Uh, uh, he really has found like solid ground. And uh, basically what he's saying in, verse, in the first seven verses of chapter five, what we're going to look at is if you want to find purpose and meaning in this life, if you want to live life, uh, uh, live life well from a place of wisdom, then you need to be daily mindful of how small you are and how big God is. That's a theme that runs all through Ecclesiastes. It really runs all through the Bible from Genesis to Revelations. There's, you know, God is making all these claims about who he is, that he's the creator of the heavens and the earth, that he holds all the stuff we can't even comprehend, galaxy upon galaxy. He holds it all together with just the power of his of his words, the Bible teaches that, you know, that, that God claims that he made you. He created you, and he has plans for your life. And if, and if all this is true, and there's so much more that the Bible, uh, that we, the claims of God in the Bible, uh, if it's all true, well, then it really demands a response from us. And uh, according to the Bible, the right response for you and for me is, is to uh, bow. It's to bow before our creator. It's to humbly bow before our king. And because of who he is, it's, it's to gladly give him all that we are and all that we have. Uh, A.W. Tozer said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And if God really is who he says that he is, well, then what Solomon said, what we're going to look at this weekend, uh, tonight, and what A.W. Root Beer just seeing if you're listening. Uh, what they're saying is totally true. It's totally foundational to our lives, totally really foundational to the meaning of life. And so we need to consider uh, what we think, what we believe about who God is. 
Uh, now, you may think or you may have a question come to your mind like, well, wait a minute. If God, like if God really is uh, who he says he is, if he is so big and if he made us, you know, and, and as his creations, if we are so small, well, then, like, shouldn't we naturally think correctly about who God is? Like, shouldn't we be born knowing his greatness if he's our maker? I think that's a fair question. So uh, to answer that, we go back to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God, you know, he creates everything. He creates male and female, Adam and Eve, and he creates this beautiful, beautiful garden, the Garden of Eden. And in the Garden of Eden, everything is perfect. Everything is right. Uh, It was clear in the Garden of Eden about who God was. God is lovingly large and in charge. And it was very clear about who we were as humans, that we are small and very dependent on him and, and under his wonderful care and his wonderful protection. But then there's this pivotal chapter in Genesis, uh, of the, uh, Genesis 3 where the enemy of humanity, the devil, he deceives us, Adam and Eve. He, he tricks us and suddenly God, suddenly things have changed. God is no longer seen as lovingly large and in charge. Uh, suddenly, suddenly he's more like one of many options in this life. Um, his presence, his wonderful care in our lives Really, it's increasingly, it's no longer wanted. In fact, uh, we start to see him as controlling and oppressive. Why is that? Because we who were created to be small and dependent have now believed a lie. That we, we are large and in charge of our lives. And uh, really from Genesis 3 on, it's like, cue the chaos. So um, typically... In our sermons here at VCDC, our hope is that you would be lifted up by the love of God and the truth of God. Well, my goal this evening is to do the opposite of that. And I don't mean I want to tear you down. I don't mean that. But what I mean is that you would consider like, just how you see God. Uh, my, my hope, my prayer is that we would increasingly, rightfully, see ourselves as very small. See ourselves as very small com- you know, in, in, in his presence in comparison to the greatness of who God is. All right? So let's pray, and then I will uh, tear you down. Okay. But Lord, thanks for your presence here. I pray that we wouldn't uh, get so used to those words that they lose their meaning. But I pray that you would awaken us uh, uh, just uh, in a fresh way tonight as we gather. I pray for those who are watching online or that you would come close to them. You would, you would awaken them to your presence. We ask that you would come and do what you want to do. We just welcome you here. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Shorter passage uh, this evening. It's, uh, we're going to start in verse 1, um, and it'll also be on the screens. Here's what it says. Solomon said this. He said, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. 
Do not let your mouth lead you into sin, and do not protest to the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless, are hevel. Therefore, stand in awe of God. Now, like I said in my intro, intro, Solomon is like, he's preaching here. Like, this is like super strong. This is very clear language. It's, it's basically saying, hey, 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 hey. Because of who God is, he's big, you're small, right? Because of who he is, we need to take our worship of him, our, you know, our drawing near to him, our relationship with him, our words to him. We need to take that all very serious because of who he is. And this passage, I believe this is accurate, that this, and this is important, that this passage is especially directed at those of us who this is a regular routine for us who regularly attend church, where, where because of the routine, uh, it's easy to go through the motions in both you know, our words and our actions, really to not even think about what we're doing as we gather together as a church family, as we live out our Christian lives. Um, remember, Solomon is writing Ecclesiastes from a place of observing uh, himself and others going through all the stuff of life. And Solomon, when we talk about uh, uh, the house of God, what I read a little earlier, Solomon would have been very familiar with the gathering, of, uh, the gathering and activities of God's people at the house of God. And he was referring to the, to the temple when he said that. Remember, it was Solomon who God chose to, base, to build the temple in Jerusalem in, in the first place, you know, to build this place where God, literally this touchdown point on earth where God would meet with his people, and more accurately, he, where he would meet with the high priest once a year, and you know, and they had this this the room, the holy, the holy of holies, the place where the Jews, where they would come to fulfill uh, and offer the many sacrifices that God had had taught them through through Moses. And Solomon was very aware of of just the uniqueness and, and just how awesome the temple was, and and he was aware that it was because he he was you know basically the one who built it or oversaw the building. He was aware that it was built in such a way that it was meant to stir awe in, in the hearts of all those who entered it. I did some research, and it's estimated that over 8 million pounds of gold was used in the building of the temple. Because think of, if you read it, there's all, this, all this stuff is overlaid with gold. 76 million pounds of silver, again, these are estimates, was used. The total cost of gold and silver in today's numbers, over $216 billion. And we're not talking Canadian. We're talking American dollars. Like, it should be like a, a gasp. But, but like the walls of the temple rose 10 stories above the ground. And they were made with stones as small as two tons or as large as over 500 tons. Solomon was really aware that God's temple was built to show his greatness in your smallness. Right? And if you look out through history, there's, you know, all through history, there's been cathedrals all over the world that have been built, places of worship that have been built for, for, this, very, for this very fact, like to show his greatness and to show our smallness. Like, let's look at this first picture. This is the famous cathedral. That's Notre Dame in Paris, right? I mean, you walk into that and it would just be, it would be awesome. This is my favorite. The next one, this is St. Uh, Basil's or Basil's in Moscow. Is it, it's like, or is it in Disney World? I'm not sure, but it really has a, a cool, looks beautiful. This one's closer to home. This is St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City. 
Just a stunning building. And this cathedral is even closer to home. There you go. Okay. All right. So Solomon starts chapter five with, uh, he says this. He says, now guard your steps when you go to the temple. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. Again, you know, Solomon was uh, uh, built the original temple and he knew how awesome it was. And I mean, he would have, you know, like um, he would have seen, he would have been able to observe the actual people who would have entered the temple, who would have walked up the steps. He would have seen the, you know, he would have seen the awe-filled expressions as they entered into these mighty gates and into the, into the temple. And, you know, isn't it true that there's something about an awesome historical place that the effect it has on you, it stirs your heart, it stirs your emotions, and it shuts your mouth? Have you ever been in a place like that? Like, and it takes a really awesome place to shut my mouth. But, but, it, but where if you do say anything, it would be like, ooh, or wow, if you, if you say anything. Like, here's a little infomercial. Next April, Helen and I are going to be leading a trip to Israel, a pilgrimage to Israel. We have a few spots open if, you, if you're interested in that. But, but I mention it because when we go to Israel, and we've been there once, it's almost two weeks of going into places that stir your heart, stir your emotions, emotions, and shut your mouth. Where there's some places that we went to where I, I didn't even want to talk because there was such a sense of awe and such a sense of being really small, right? Now, imagine, though, if we did that trip to Israel every six months, Right? Or imagine the people in Solomon's day who, whether it was week after week or month after month or year, like, like are going up to the temple. That place, you know, the awe would turn more into yawn. Okay, yeah, that was funny to me, but the awe, yaw, like it would turn like, it, like <laughs> the places wouldn't be so great anymore, would they? Because they'd be familiar. You'd be, you'd be used to them. In this passage that we're looking at, Solomon is cautioning those of us, especially those of us who, you know, have entered God's house many times. His caution is beware, beware there's danger, there's danger in the familiarity. So let me, let me bring it even more into uh, today. Like when I look at this building, I don't think this is the house of God, right? This is not a sacred building. It's bricks and mortar, it's drywall and paint and all kinds of other stuff. This is a beautiful building. And I'm super thankful for this building, but it's not sacred. It is basically a gathering place. What makes this building sacred uh, are those who gather in it. It's you. It's the people of God gathering together to worship together, to learn from God, to pray to him, to lean into his presence. I mean, it's, it's, it's the people of God and it's the presence of God here that makes this place Sacred, uh, but compare this building to the cathedrals of old, like the ones that I showed you. Like, unlike those cathedrals, this building was built more with you in mind than God. Like VCDC was not built to stir awe, 
Right? It's like you don't walk in here and, you know, and see the architecture. You don't, and just, and, and, and are, you know, like you don't stir towards the greatness of God. Like these, these cubicles are huge. These baths, you know, it's like, like it just doesn't do that because it was not meant to do that. This building really was built for your comfort and for just practical use. Now, add to that, uh, and I'm going somewhere with this, add to that our theological culture. And what I mean is we believe uh, rightfully so and biblically so, we believe in the accessibility of, uh, of God to all. Like, we don't have a holy of holies in here, do we? Right? We don't have a, like, like we believe that God is accessible, available to everybody in this room. And I wonder, though, like, in, in catering more to the needs of people rather than God... In presenting God in an, in an accessible to all way, which I believe is totally biblical and I believe it's God's heart, I wonder though, especially for those of us who've been around church for years, have we unintentionally made God small? Like, when I look at the passage or I consider the passage, like, do you, do you guard your steps? Like the past, do you guard your steps when you come to church? And I don't mean, boy, those sidewalks, be careful. Please don't sue us. It's going to be, you know, so there's going to be snow. I don't mean that. I mean, when you come, when we gather together, are you thinking about where you're going and what you're going to do? Do you think about whose presence it is you're going into? Because here's the, here's the thing is when we don't think about it, then we don't value it. And, 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 and it, when it increasingly becomes routine, well, there's a danger of God just getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And then we're in danger of offering what Solomon calls, and this is strong words, the sacrifice of fools. <clears throat> uh, and here's a definition, a, sa- a sacrifice of fools. A sacrifice offered without faith, without belief, without conviction, performed more because of cultural or traditional demands. Like, like do you just go about your worship uh, uh, you know, uh, your responses to God, your prayers, your offerings to him. Is it like, do you sort of do it mindlessly or, or even half-heartedly? Like, do you come to church and sort of, it's like, well, this is just what we always do. Like, uh, this is how I was raised. I mean, I know nothing but going to church on Sundays. That's been my entire life. I mean, is it, do we think about this whole thing of offering and sacrifice? I mean, those are foreign words or sacrifice, especially is foreign to us. Um, like, I didn't see anyone coming through the doors tonight with a, you know, like, I don't, you know, we don't do sacrifices anymore, animal sacrifices. But, but what sacrifice do we bring when we gather? When we come together, what do we bring? What do we offer to God? Romans 12, 1 says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. When's the last time you thought about that? Like our, our sacrifice, our offering, what we bring to God is ourselves. It's our bodies. It's our, our minds. It's our dreams. It's our time. It's our abilities. It's our worship. It's our, it's our affection. It's our emotions. It's, it's our, our resources, our commitment. It's our service. It's our money. It's just all the stuff of who we are. And in this passage today, Solomon is... He's really zeroing in on the words, the words that we offer, the words that we say to God in in his presence. And so so it's kind of like he's saying, hey, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go to listen 
rather than mindlessly, without taking serious, without thinking before you speak, without being mindful of whose presence you're in to just start going through the church motions. Like, I mean, we sang one song already. We're going to sing some more. Like, how much do you sing? Do you think about what you're singing? Like, because really, your song, it's more than a song. It's like, it's basically a prayer to God. I, I remember, um, maybe, I think many of you were here, actually, years ago, Phil Strout. Remember Phil Strout? He's the national leader for the vineyard. Uh, he was here, and, and in those days, I remember we were doing a song that was really popular called Lay Me Down. Right? Remember that song, Lay Me Down? The chorus goes like this. Uh, I lay me down. I am not my own. I belong to you alone. Lay me down. <clears throat> lay me down. Hand on my heart, this much is true. There's no life apart from you. Lay me down, lay me down. And we, when we sing that song, it's like, it's like a jig breaks out. Ah, lay me down. I mean, it's like, uh, uh, like, I mean, we sing that with such gusto. And I remember when we sang that, Phil Strout, he came up on the stage. You remember? And he said, folks, folks. Like he's, he's got a great Maine accent. He's like, folks, are you thinking about what you're saying right now? That's crazy what you're saying right now. Like, that's Romans 12, one language. I lay me down, living sacrifice. Let me just climb up on this altar, God. I, you know, that's, like, that's, that's basically what you're saying. God is in heaven, and you are on earth, so let your words be few. God is big, and you are small, so approach with humility. Think before you speak. And as he's zeroing in on words, he then uh, talks specifically about vows. He says this in verse 4, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not protest to the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. I wasn't thinking, I just said it. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? And again, you know, Solomon, I mean, he's being very direct. You know, he's focusing on the greatness of God and the smallness of us and the importance of us thinking about whose presence we're in and, and who we're talking to. So don't be flippant in, in the words that you, you share with God and I, you know, or in the vows you make with God. And I, I was thinking about that, and I, I'm like, I don't know if I've ever made a vow to God, right? Like a little over 34 years ago, I know I made a vow to my wife, Helen, and I know it was before God and, and many witnesses. Um, the only thing that came to my mind was when I was 15, um, I was home alone, I was bored, and my oldest brother's car was parked in the driveway. And um, you probably know where I'm going. So in, in Canada, you, can't get your, you don't get your learners till you're 16. So I was 15. So I didn't have my learners, and I didn't have my brother's permission. And mom and dad will talk this out later. But I, I thought it would be fun to take my brother's car for just a little spin. And so I did. It was a 70, I think, 78 Dodge Swinger. Woo! But we went, I went for a drive, and I was, I, I was driving for like 10 or 15 minutes, and I was turning around in a residential area, and boom, it just died. And I thought, oh, no. I am so in trouble on so many levels. Like, I mean, there's no cell phone. Like, it was like, like I thought, what am I going to do? And, and I don't know how long it took me to get to this, but I, I remember thinking, maybe I should pray. And so, I, like, this is sort of, a, I, I, like, kind of like a vow. I said, God, I prayed something like this. God, if you fix this car, I'll never do this again. 
And I went, started right up, and I drove straight home. I really did. I drove straight home, and I never did that again with that car. (laughs) But uh, I just had to get that off my chest. But I don't think that was a vow like what Solomon was getting at. So here, this might be a helpful definition. A vow was a promise or commitment, a religious tribute to God. Worshippers often vowed to do something unusual and voluntary if God answered their prayer request. Vows were not required by God, but once made, it was imperative to follow through on the vow. Now, it's really important in what we're talking about to understand that like the vows that Solomon is, in, is addressing are ones that are self-initiated in the hearts of the people, like, like, rather than in the heart of God. God's not asking for these vows. Because remember back to the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, everything was right. God was, was lovingly large in charge, and, you know, and we were small and dependent you know, under his wonderful care. It was the way it was meant to be. But then sin entered in, and we've, we've forgotten all that. That's part of our broken condition. We've forgotten what we were, whose care we were meant to be under. And a big part of the work that God does in the heart and life of anyone who follows him is helping us remember whose we are, helping us, you know, help to help us lead us back to the, to the garden, to to the place where how it was meant to be, and and this whole thing of us, you know, initiating vows with God, like like really, what's going on is we're really trying to bargain with Him, like really, it's like we're we're, we're sort of like trying to earn His activity in our lives, like okay, God, uh, hey, if I do this, then you do that, okay. Or if you do that, then, then, then I'll do this. And it's kind of like, you know, God, let's, let's make a deal, God. But God's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. That's not the kind of relationship that, that I want to have with my people. The practice of making vows probably was a holdover from ancient, you know, pagan worship practices during times of famine and plague or infertility, drought, war, etc., where a, a person or a group of people would, you know, would like make a vow, like they'd go to their God, their deity, promising to give something or do something, some type of sacrifice um, um, in return for the God's uh, intervention, in return for his favor shown. But again, that's not the kind of relationship God is inviting us into. You can't, you can't bargain, you can't earn what God offers because what he offers is a gift. It's a gift. It's, it's like in all his activity in our lives and his, you know, us, like it's all a gift from him. You, you can't earn it from him. Um, there's a story in 1 Samuel 15 where uh, um, God has chosen a guy named Saul. You're probably familiar with this story. Uh, Saul's the first king of Israel. And one of the things that we really quickly see uh, in the character of Saul is that Saul sees God as small and not as large. And what I mean by that is this. When God speaks to Saul, and in and, and, and his life, it was through this, this amazing guy named Samuel, through the prophet Samuel. Uh, when God would speak through Samuel, it looks like Saul took the commands of God more like suggestions than commands. And in 1 Samuel 15, there's a story where you know Samuel, God speaks to Samuel. Samuel goes to Saul, and he says, Saul... God wants you to go to that people group over there, the Amalekites, and, and he wants you to wipe them out, Saul. And then what he means is like, like uh, put everything, all the animals, and everyone, young and old, put them all to death. 
wipe them out. Okay, so like that's like it's like super clear. So Saul and the army they go off to war and they defeat the Amalekites, but they preserve the life of the king of the Amalekites, and uh, they also preserve and save the best of the animals. Which I get that. It totally makes sense. Like, 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 why would you? A beautiful horse. Why would you? Well, you would. Why would you? Well, it makes sense. But except for the fact that that's not what they were supposed to do. And so Samuel shows up in the scene and he, you know, he walks up to Saul and he says, hey, Saul. Uh, Saul's drinking Gatorade. And he says, Saul, what's this, what's this bleeding that I hear in my ears? What's this, like, what's this lowing of cattle that I hear uh, in my ears? And, and here's where Saul shows that people were bigger than God in his eyes. And I'm reading into the story, but it's kind of like Saul goes, oh, yeah, hey, I, well, yeah, I hear them too, <laughs> right? Like, I, yeah, uh, well, and, and he does this like at least twice in this story. Well, actually, the soldiers, he throws them under the bus. The soldiers, the soldiers saved the best animals, And now Saul's thinking, how am I going to work my way out of this one? And he says, and they, well, actually, we did this so that we could make a magnificent sacrifice to God uh, for the victory that he has given us. Wasn't that great, Samuel? And Samuel's like, no. Uh, Verse 22, Samuel says, what is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen. Obedience is better than sacrifice, and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft. You're trying to manipulate, and stubbornness as bad as worshiping idols. So because you uh, have rejected the command of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. To obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than putting on some religious performance for God. It's like... Just do what he's told you to do. Uh, Here are some indicators that God may be, may be, small in your eyes. And the first one is really, we're taking it from Saul. His words are more suggestions than commands to you. Like, just think about your life. You know, you hear something in a sermon, or you're reading the Bible, and something really jumps out at you, or you're at small group, and there's something you're discussing where God, there's something that God has made really clear to you. And, and, and it's like, this is what I want for you to do. But, but you see it as more of an option. So like, for instance, this is a random one. Okay, the Bible says no sex before marriage, right? The Bible says that we only express our sexuality in marriage between a, a, a husband and a wife, between a man and a woman. Any sex outside of the marriage covenant, God says, don't do it. It's only going to hurt you. And we hear that and we think, we sort of go, hey, thanks, God. That, thanks for that option. That's, that's pretty good. You know what? We're going to put that way over there. Are there any other options out there? And someone says, hey, hey, how about this? How about um, uh, just, just, it's okay as long as you don't go all the way. And you're like, that's a good option. Uh, do you see his words uh, as more suggestions than commands? Well, he may be small in your eyes. Okay? We're having fun. Next one, prayer. Talking with God is more of an obligation than a privilege. See, if God is small in your eyes, you, you know, if he's small, it's like, it's like, well, I don't really know if he cares. And even if he, if he did, I don't really know if he could do anything. Uh, I remember a few weeks back, I was back in Canada, and I was staying at my mother-in-law's, and she had a bit of a to-do list for me, like a fix-it list. And like, I am not a fix-it guy. 
only in my dreams. Like, I am a wreck-it guy. And, uh, but one of my brothers, the brother just above me, his name's Peter. Like, he is a builder, and he can fix anything. And he is very big in my eyes when it comes, well, for a lot of reasons, but especially when it comes to building and fixing things. And so uh, when I looked at this one project that I had, I'm like, oh, boy. So I called my brother. I texted him multiple times. I even sent him pictures. Are you sure this is what I should do? Like, is this right? Did I do it right? Am I going to blow anything up? Like, it was such a privilege in my smallness to, to call out, to call him, the one who I saw as big in my eyes, right? It, didn't, it was not at all like, oh, I got to call Peter. It was like, yes, I get to call Peter. He's going to help, you know, help me figure this out. God's desire, and you know where I'm going with this. God's desire is for us, small us, to go to him with all the challenges of life. Because God is, he's always, he's always greater than any challenge we have. To pray, to ask for his help is a privilege, not an obligation, Here's another one. At times, he's the last one we turn to, but the first one we blame. What do I mean by that? Well, I think this is what I mean. Similar to the last one, he's small, so you don't go to him right away. You look for other options. But then when the thing that you're hoping for doesn't work out, you're angry with him because God is small, and therefore he's there to do your bidding. Therefore, he's there to to fulfill your desires. If that's you, it may be because God is small in your eyes. Uh, Two more. Times of worship, singing, make no sense. The word worship comes from an old English word, and it's uh, worth, worth worth-ship, which means to proclaim and give worth to something or someone you consider precious and supremely valuable. If God is small in your eyes, why would you worship him? Last one. Your faith is expressed primarily on weekends. Now, remember, my goal is to tear us all down, right? And I'm joking. I'm not. It's not. But but this last one, let's be honest with ourselves. If the only time that I think about God or worship him or talk to him or just consider who he is, is this hour or, you know, a little bit more than an hour on the weekend, well... Doesn't that sound like he's more of an option in my life than my king, my savior, my, my healer, etc.? Could, could it be because he's small in your eyes? Okay, let's finish off here. Why don't we have the worship team come on back? There they are. I hear them. Verse 7 says this. It says, much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Hevel. Therefore, stand in awe of God. And, you know, I, I, I think this is accurate, that, that in this seven-verse section, it is like a standalone section that, that Solomon wrote. And, and I believe in this section, he's using a literary style known as inclusio. And we might call it Oreo cookie, but, but inclusio sounds way smarter. Where, and basically what it is is where to get your point across... You bracket your statement at the beginning and then at the end of your statement with the same thought that you are trying to drive home to the person who's reading this or listening. So his first, first line is, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. And then the last, time, last line is, therefore, stand in awe of God. And as I read this passage over and over, it's like Solomon is diagnosing a sickness in humanity. The consequences of Genesis 3, that we have forgotten, we have forgotten the greatness of God, 
uh, and the smallness of us, of humanity. And uh, we no longer guard our steps when we enter the presence of God. And then in verses 2 through 6, he really goes on to, you know, after diagnosing, he goes on to um, talk about the symptoms or like how this shows in our lives. How this sickness shows in our words and our commitments where we're flippant. We're disrespectful toward God. We're demanding of God. We're distracted in our faith. We're, you know, we're bored, etc. But then after diagnosing the sickness and giving a brief description, the, uh, basically he gives the cure. He gives the medicine. He gives, there's hope. In verse 7 it says, Therefore, stand in awe of God. And you know, every time we gather to worship God, Every time we, we pray, every time we turn to God, even in our thoughts, every time we think about God, we have an opportunity to take the prescribed medicine. We have an opportunity to get a glimpse of the greatness of God. You know, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely small in the light of his glory and grace. Why don't we stand up? We're going to go back into worship, and uh, the team's going to lead us in a song that was written from this text that we looked at tonight. And uh, I just want to encourage us, right now as we worship, right now as we worship, we have an opportunity to, to uh, take the, the medicine, to really get a glimpse of the greatness of God. So let me pray for us, and then we'll worship. So Lord... I thank you for your presence. I pray, God, that you would open our eyes afresh to the greatness of you. Lord, wherever you're small in our eyes, I pray that you would become very large, lovingly large and in charge. So we welcome you here in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. I hope that what you heard has encouraged you in your walk with Jesus. For more information and to contact us, go to vcdc.org. We'll bless you. Have a wonderful week.